From member-supported Colorado Public Radio, this is Since Columbine. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Can you describe the moment when you first heard about the shooting at Columbine High School? I can. When I first heard about it, I thought, not again, and even there. Hmm. There was something about this Columbine thing that just, you knew that it had now transcended uh, income, class, race, everything, that we were spiraling into some sort of a culture of violence and gun violence in schools that really bothered me. Today, at his office in Midtown Manhattan, former President Bill Clinton remembers a lot about that day 20 years ago. He remembers the horror of learning that 13 people were killed and more than 20 others wounded at their high school. And he also remembers debating his role, what to say and what not to say, to the American people. My initial reaction is this is really serious and I need to go and say something now while being careful not to say something that's factually wrong. I need first for people to listen to what happened and to be with those people in spirit. The president decided there would be time for soul-searching about what he could do later. But at that moment, from behind a lectern at the White House, his job was to comfort people. To the families who have lost their loved ones, to the parents who have lost their beloved children, to the wounded children and their families, to the people of the community of Littleton. I can only say tonight that the prayers of the American people are with you. Thank you very much. It seems to be in more recent times that presidents have taken up this role of being consoler-in-chief. Doris Kearns Goodwin is a presidential historian. Her latest book is called Leadership in Turbulent Times. Goodwin says it's not just Clinton. Many of the other modern presidents have taken on this role of consoler-in-chief in times of crisis. Goodwin says it's not an entirely new thing either. The U.S. government was built on the idea. We don't have a president who's a king, nor is he simply a prime minister. He's the head of state and the head of government. So at moments of crisis, he becomes the person who is speaking for all of us beyond our partisan ties. And it's a difficult challenge for them, but if they meet it, it really creates a sense, I think, of empathy on his part for these people and on the country's part for him. This is Since Columbine, a podcast from Colorado Public Radio about how one shooting 20 years ago changed America. Today, Clinton's role in soothing the nation after Columbine and what Americans have come to expect from their presidents after national tragedies like mass shootings. After that April day in 1999, Bill Clinton waited until things settled a bit. 
Then in May, he went to Colorado. I went as a parent. There is nothing worse in life than having a child die before you. And uh, I thought that the whole country was heartbroken by it, and I don't think you can do everything long distance. I think I needed to be there in person. He first met privately with the families of the victims at a Catholic church, people who just suffered unthinkable loss. He just uh, consoled with them. He shed tears. Frank DeAngelis was the principal of Columbine High School back then and was with the president when he met with the families at the church. I was overcome, and I thought those families were a lot more important than whatever I had to say. That for just a moment... If the president is standing there listening to them talk about their children, it gives just a hair of respect that their kids' lives mattered. And sometimes just listening is way more important than whatever you have to say. I mean, I had already said to the country more or less all I had to say, but I needed to say it again to them. He had a hard time leaving the families, and I said, you know, President Clinton, we need to go because we had over 2,000 people went and were at uh, Dakota Ridge. Dakota Ridge, the school where more Columbine families had gathered. Their own school was closed for the year. Barbara Perry is a presidential historian at the University of Virginia, which collects official oral histories of presidents dating back to Jimmy Carter. She's written about U.S. presidents as consolers, or comforters-in-chief, as she calls them. Bill Clinton was known, it became a little bit of a a catchphrase and almost a, a parody, but he was known for saying, I feel your pain. And Bill Clinton exuded, and to this day, exudes empathy. And she believes that what Clinton did after Columbine, Bush after 9-11, and Obama after Newtown, represents a shift in a culture that now asks everyone to feel and emote in public. I think that starts uh, with the the talk show circuit of maybe Phil Donahue and and Oprah uh, back in, I guess, the 70s and 80s. So presidents, I believe, have had to respond to that by becoming both the receivers of that kind of information and then coming back to the people as the therapist who listens to them, who, in Bill Clinton's terminology, feels their pain. Doris Kearns Goodwin agrees with Perry that there's been this cultural shift. Making private emotions public wasn't something leaders in the past did, though they did act as soothers. I mean, we certainly can look back in history, I suppose, to Lincoln's second inaugural, when we've come through a war that more than 600,000 people have died. And he talks about the fact that both sides shared the sin of slavery Both prayed to the same God. Neither's prayers were fully answered. And then the words we all remember with malice toward none and charity for all, let us bind up the nation's wounds. In 1933, Goodwin says Franklin Delano Roosevelt did much the same. I mean, you think about Franklin Roosevelt encountering the Depression and that first inaugural in some ways was consoling a nation. This great nation will endure. I mean, he's talking about the fact that he wasn't going to in any way minimize the terrible catastrophe they were facing um, and that the facts required that we understand what this economic situation is about. 
that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But then when he said the only thing to fear is fear itself, I mean, that's the same kind of consolation, I think, that the best of these presidents are giving. Barbara Perry also says Roosevelt had a rare gift for soothing the country at a time when many were suffering. Still, Clinton, particularly with Columbine, operated at a whole nother level. There are very few presidents as skilled as he in both being able to not only make people think he cares, but genuinely, I think, to care and to show people that he cares, combined with charisma, which is always a a helpful tool for presidents because it draws people to them. They kind of gather the people unto themselves. Something Ronald Reagan was able to do after the Challenger explosion. And Doris Kearns Goodwin points to how George W. Bush responded to 9-11. There's no question that President Bush, when he was at Ground Zero, and speaking through that bullhorn at World Trade Center, um, right in front of the victims and the first responders. And when he said, in response to somebody in the audience saying, we can't hear you. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... Goodwin notes Bush's speech at Ground Zero did two things. It consoled the victims and assured the American people that the terrorists would be punished. And that was a tone of defiance. That's different in some ways than some of these other tones of Obama after Newtown or Clinton after Columbine or after the Oklahoma City bombing, where you're really just reaching out to comfort the people who's, for whom it's happened. UVA historian Barbara Perry says there's a line presidents have to draw. Sure, they can be emotional, but not artificial. She thinks about Obama after Newtown. He became tearful. Now, we typically don't want our presidents breaking down into sobs, but if a president genuinely is tearful and has to wipe away a tear, uh, that is a way to, it's not done on purpose, but it's a way to connect to the people. And I remember thinking at the time, here he had two little girls in grade school. We've endured too many of these tragedies in the past few years. And each time I learn the news, I react not as a president, but as anybody else would, as a parent. And that was especially true today. I know there's not a parent in America who doesn't feel the same overwhelming grief that I do. The majority of those who died today were children, Uh, beautiful little kids between the ages of 5 and 10 years old. Obama pauses here for a few moments and has to compose himself. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. Tragedies have continued into President Trump's tenure. Shootings, hurricanes, fires. Presidential historian Barbara Perry gives Trump low marks as comforter-in-chief. 
I don't think he will be considered, by virtue of his persona, an empathetic person or a person who naturally feels other people's pain. He is not um, a, a gifted orator in this space. Goodwin points to the fires in California as a good example. President Trump was quick to blame forest management before consoling the victims. At the same time, Goodwin says, there's a political dynamic when it comes to mass shootings and gun laws that makes being a consoler-in-chief more challenging. The debate over gun laws makes it harder for a president to reach out because immediately there's a political aspect to it. Are we going to say something about being more stringent about gun licenses and who's allowed to have guns? Clinton tried to thread the needle back in 1999 after Columbine. He wanted stricter gun laws. During that trip to console the community in Colorado, he told the crowd they now had the power to change things. I think one of the jobs that a president has when something like this happens is to try to set the stage when we're clearer headed and when our grieving stops to think about what happens, what we should do, what we owe the future. We know somehow that what happened to you has pierced the soul of America. And it gives you a chance to be heard in a way no one else can be heard by the president and by ordinary people in every community in this country. You can help us to build a better future for all our children. Clinton would have liked to see restrictions on gun sales after Columbine, comprehensive background checks. But he says politics got in the way. Still, even today, he hasn't given up hope. There are very few permanent victories and permanent defeats in politics. The ebb and flow of opinion and opportunity and chance, it changes. But there's some things that are worth fighting for for a very long time. Columbine also helped Clinton fight for a shared sense of humanity. He remembers quoting a Bible verse on the night of the shooting 20 years ago. St. Paul reminds us that we all see things in this life through a glass darkly, that we only partly understand what is happening. Nobody ever has the whole truth. Doesn't mean there's no truth, but it means that it's crazy to be a fanatic and jam other people all the time with sanctimony when we as human beings, part of the human condition is humility and love of your fellow human beings, communal love. So I started trying to explain that to people. And I thought, uh, I thought it belonged at that moment. Clinton remembers wanting to make sure nobody forgot what happened that day 20 years ago. That's why he thinks it's important for a president to give solace in times of crisis. We don't know each other's stories anymore. We're used to treating each other like two-dimensional cartoons, not three-dimensional people. It's why he visited Littleton, Colorado, not just on that day, but several times over the past 20 years. 
So Columbine became real to me and a lot and millions of other Americans. And that one of the things a president's supposed to do in a crisis is make sure that it doesn't become a fleeting thing on the news. Somehow, more than anything else, America's got to recover the ability to spend a little time every day feeling like they do when there's a horrible crisis like that. Clinton has remained deeply connected to Columbine, and not just in his thoughts. He helped the community raise money and finish the Columbine Memorial. He contributed his own money to it. And he still talks on the phone with Columbine High School's former principal, Frank DeAngelis. I like them. I like DeAngelis and all those people that just wouldn't give up, you know. I like the fact that they still care. Through, uh, you know, real life returned to them, you know. They're the ones who had kids. The kids grew up. The other things happened. Misfortunes occurred in their lives. They got sick. They got well. They whatever. But they still care. And if they still care, somebody needs to be willing there to walk with them. Thanks for listening to Since Columbine. Our next episode will be out later this week. We'll also put the full interview with President Clinton in the podcast feed. Please support our work, recommend this podcast to a friend, and visit CPR.org to become a member. This episode of Since Columbine was reported by Andrea Dukakis. It was edited by Rachel Esterbrook with help from Kevin Dale. John Pinno produced and mixed the episode, Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Since Columbine is a production of Colorado Public Radio.